This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry Gross. Our guest today, Billy Porter, won an Emmy in 2019 for his starring role in the FX series Pose. It was a drama series set in the gay and trans underground ballroom scene of the late 80s and early 90s, the culture that inspired Madonna's hit 1990 record, Vogue. Porter's character, known as Pray Tell, was the ball MC and provided the commentary for ball competitions involving dancing, lip-syncing, and costumes. The balls are celebratory, but as the series progressed and time elapsed, the AIDS epidemic kept getting worse and a growing number of people in the community were dying. Billy Porter says he was adjacent to the ballroom scene, and his memoir, Unprotected, now out in paperback, shows some of the parallels between his life and that of Pray Tell. The book also describes the obstacles he faced growing up poor in Pittsburgh, with a mother who had a degenerative neurological disorder, a stepfather who sexually abused him, and schoolmates who brutally bullied him. He found many creative ways to circumvent those obstacles and managed to get admitted to a performing arts high school, study theater at Carnegie Mellon University, and get parts in Broadway shows. In 2013, he won a Tony and a Grammy for his starring role in the musical Kinky Boots. But roles were scarce because he was black, or his voice was too high, or he was too gay. He even was told he was too flamboyant to portray characters that were described as flamboyant. Now he kind of embraces flamboyant and is famous for his red carpet appearances in clothes that are elegant and outrageous at the same time. Terry Gross spoke to Billy Porter last year. Let's start with a scene from the first season of Pose. When Pray Tell is an MC at Balls, he's colorful in his praise and his put-downs. Here he is commenting on a dance performance by Candy, a trans woman of whom Pray Tell has always been critical. Pray Tell seems to enjoy mocking her voguing and dancing, but as you'll hear, Candy has some powerful comebacks. Candy is played by Angelica Ross. The category is called lofting. It is a dance category for actual dancers. We've been down this road before. You are not a dancer. You are not a voguer. And quite frankly, I'm concerned about your health. Break dancing might burst that silicone. And you don't want to go back to that flat ass you used to have now, do you? Why are you always reading me to riot act, pray tell? You go out of your way to put me down. I don't have to put you down when you're always in the bottom. You stood up there on your perch talking about it's our time. Our time to be seen. To show the world what we got. That's right. But in this room, you the only one that refused to see that I got something to contribute. I got heart. I got talent. I'm a star just like Madonna. Okay. Judges your scores. Five. Five. Zero. Six. Five. I don't know what to tell you, girl. The cards don't lie. You gonna regret your words. I'm a star. I know who I am. Yes, you are. I am somebody. 
okay, you go on ahead and be somebody, Miss Jesse Jackson. Just not on my floor. Music, please. Billy Porter, welcome to Fresh Air. You are so great in that role. <laughs> Thank you. And, and your new book is so good. Um, so um, Poe's a set in the world of ball culture. During the AIDS crisis, you, were, you describe yourself as adjacent to that world. What was your relationship to ballroom culture? Well, you know, I moved to New York in 91, well, actually, December 27th, 1990, to start rehearsals for the original cast of Miss Saigon. So I say adjacent because I went to a couple of balls. But I was doing eight shows a week, so I didn't have a lot of time. You know, if I was not working on Broadway, I probably would have been more inside of the culture on a consistent basis. So I say adjacent because I went to a few. <laughs> what was your impression? What really struck you about the balls? The sense of community, the sense of family, the sense of chosen family, the sense of um, a group of people who are outcasts choosing life anyway. I understood that. Um, I related to that. I felt a part of that. Did you pattern your version of an MC on anybody you saw MC? I know you were told... Um, to pattern it after the MC in a documentary about the ball culture called Paris is Burning. But did you draw on your own experiences too? Well, I, you know, I am a person who grew up in the Pentecostal church. You know, I was labeled little preacher man when I was like five or six. I preached my first sermon when I was, my first and last sermon when I was around <laughs> 10 or 11. You know, so to sort of have those kind of oratory skills is something that I've always had. I also went into the role knowing that I needed to ground the character of Pray Tell in something that felt important, something that felt classic. And I was like, you know, this should feel Shakespearean. It should feel like the most important thing on the planet because to these people it is and so as I began to work on the character I really um, leaned into this grand and grounded classical largesse if you will because I've always found that in the theater those are the performances that um, move me the most you know, and we in the theater have a unique ability to be huge and real simultaneously. And I knew that Pray Tell needed to be that. My impression is, you know, he delivers a lot of very cutting put downs to people whose performances don't measure up in his opinion. My impression reading your book is that you are pretty skilled <laughs> at that yourself and use it as needed to maintain your demand for respect. That's a good way of putting it. But let me be clear. Yes. <laughs> I am not pray tell at all. And it is always my last resort. I have a tongue I can take up for myself. Don't mistake my kindness for weakness. 
but I am always leading with kindness and compassion first. When you were young, when you were young and getting bullied, was your tongue helpful? No, because my tongue was the thing that made people mad. (laughs) (laughs) My tongue made people matter because I was also extremely intelligent. So, like, I could make somebody feel like a dummy. And that's not what you want your bully to feel like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you also say in the book that you you had such, like, good like enunciation so clear and yes that people found that like well people in the hood found that to be too white um people thought I was trying to be white from the hood and I was like I'm not this is just the way I talk I don't know what else to say (laughs) I came out talking in complete sentences and I would prefer to continue to do so and I don't necessarily ascribe to You know, what we called it at that time was Ebonics. Um, You know, what we call it today, I don't know what we call it today. In the 70s, it was called Jive. (laughs) You know, I I just talk like a regular person as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) One of the really striking things about your memoir is that you had so much working against you growing up. The church was condemning you because it was clear you were gay. Um, and your family was so attached to the church. People at school were bullying you for the same reason, and you got really badly beaten a few times. Your stepfather was sexually abusing you. You family didn't really have money, but you managed to figure out ways to get into a special school, to go to a high school for performing arts, to get scholarships to Carnegie Mellon so that you could study theater and voice there. And then to get yourself from Pittsburgh to New York and get cast in Broadway shows. How much planning did you do as a child to figure out a route to take so that you could use your gift as a singer and a performer and so that you could discover who you really were outside of the confines of your family and of the church? There was a lot of planning and scheming. You know, I was really blessed to be introduced to musical theater in the sixth grade. And, um, you know, on the very same day I was introduced to the idea of theater, my grandmother and my great aunt, it was my birthday, and they came and picked me up at school as a surprise, took me downtown to see a touring company of The Wiz. And... um, I was like, oh, there, there's the theater. And then I did a production of Babes in Arms in sixth grade. And then that year I was happened to be washing dishes in my kitchen. And everybody knows this story at this point. And, um, <laughs> I know the story you're going to tell. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the Tony Awards came on and, you know, Jennifer Holliday saying, and I'm telling you, I'm not going. And I was like, I, I just made a correlation. You know, I didn't understand. I, f- for some reason... Seeing theater on television registered that I could make money doing it. That's interesting. Yeah. In the theater, it didn't register that that was a profession. It was great, but it didn't register that it was a profession that I could make money from. So it was seeing the performance of Dreamgirls on TV, on the Tony Awards, and watching a woman sing like I sang in church. Not Babes in Arms. Not I wish I were in love again that I had to do in the musical. You see what I mean? It's like the sleepless nights, the daily fight. I didn't think I could make no money doing that. 
in the sixth grade. <laughs> that wasn't how I sang, <laughs> right? Like, so it was seeing her, it was seeing Jennifer, it was seeing that show that helped me understand, ooh, I can make a living doing this. I'm going to figure out every way that I can to do that. And so I just started going and asking and doing whatever I could and being in whoever's choir and, you know, auditioning for whatever I could. And, you know, slowly but surely I I got into the business in Pittsburgh. And then, you know, I had such great angels in my life who led me in the right directions and I got the right kind of training and, uh, you know, ended up at Carnegie Mellon, which was right down the street from my house, 12 minute ride from my house, had no idea that one of the greatest, you know, acting schools in our country, in the world, was 15 minutes away from my house. I had no idea. It was amazing. So when you were growing up, you used to go to the library and check out cast recordings. And the librarian there said, here's the only cast recording you're going to need this week. It's Sunday in the Park with George. And that had a huge impact on you. What was it about Sunday in the Park with George that spoke to you? You know, even at that age... I understood the healing power of art. Sunday in the Park with George is about that. It's about getting to the truth of yourself as a human being through your art. I don't know, it was so deep. I was 14 years old, I just got it. Let's stick with Sondheim for a moment. You auditioned for a revival of Into the Woods, which is the Sondheim James Lapine musical based on fairy tales. And you auditioned for The Baker. You auditioned for James Lapine, who wrote the book for Into the Woods and was directing this revival. You auditioned for The Baker, and he thought you weren't quite right for it, but you really wanted to play the witch. Mm-hmm. And he brought it up. He brought it up. Okay, so, so what, what did he say and what was your reaction? Well, you know, I went in for the baker and I took all my fabulous out <laughs> because I couldn't get people to take me seriously as an actor. And, and my voice is very specific. And so early on in auditions, I would rearrange things, change keys, make it so that I was presenting myself in the greatest way that I possibly could. Well, that was pigeonholing me. And so I understood that if I wanted anybody to take me seriously as an actor, I was going to have to go in and take all the fabulous out. And the baker is not fabulous. And so I went in, and the baker also, for those of you who are musicians listening, the baker is way too low for me. Like, I am a high tenor, almost an alto with extension. At this time, I was an alto. Like, my voice was really high. So I finished singing No More, and James Lapine, who had known me because I'd worked with him on Faust, this Randy Newman musical called Faust, a few years prior, um, a workshop of it. So he knew me, and he knew my talent, and he knew my fabulous. And he said, oh, that was beautifully acted, Billy. 
That's all I needed to hear. And I went to get my stuff and I was getting ready to go. And he's like, well, where are you going? Because I didn't think for one second that anybody was going to cast a black person in a Sondheim musical because we were still there at that point. The only black person that had really been cast in a Sondheim musical at that point was Mrs. Huxtable replacing Bernadette Peters. And that's because she brings in ticket sales. Not, you know, it's, it, what, there was no like regular black person. I think Terry Burrell was a stepsister in Into the Woods as a replacement. I mean, like, that's how much I know about it because that's how I still haven't been cast in the Sondheim show. Um, and, and he's one of my favorites. So anyway, you know, so then he said, well, you know, I, I, you have a little bit too much pizzazz for the baker, you know, but I've been thinking about, you know, the possibility of like maybe playing with the gender of the witch. And I said, uh, please don't play with my emotions. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, that is my biggest dream. Um, and so he said, great, well, well, you know, go and take the material and come back in a couple of days and let's see what you do with it. And I said, I don't need to take the material away. I can do it now. And he said, what? I said, I can sing it now. I just need a few minutes to go over the sides for the script, but I can sing it now. Because, you know, I had last midnight, I mean, you know, that was committed to memory and Bernadette's key, so... You know, I went outside for 10 minutes, read, read over the script, came back in and sang Last Midnight, and they gagged. <laughs> they gagged? Gagged. That's, a, that's, that's Quinglish for they had an amazing response. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, okay, so, but then 9-11 happened, and then you never heard from them again. I, yeah, so... So you never got to do it. You did, I will add, end up doing an all-black production of Sondheim songs. I don't know if it was um, a review or... It was a review of Sondheim's music. But what I want to do here is play your recording of The Last Midnight, which is featured on your album at the corner of Broadway and Soul. And I really like this version of it, Billy. So um, let's hear it. So this is my guest, Billy Porter, singing... The Last Midnight from the Sondheim musical Into the Woods. It's the last midnight. It's the last wish. It's the last midnight. Soon it will be boom, squish Told a little lie, stole a little gold Broke a little vow, did you? Had to get your prince, had to get your cow Have to get your wish, doesn't matter how Anyway, it doesn't matter now It's the It's the boom splat Nothing but a vast midnight Everybody smashed flat Nothing we can do Not exactly true We could always give her the boy No, no, no No, of course what really matters is the blame Somebody to blame Fine, if that's the thing you enjoy, placing the blame. If that's the aim, give me the blame. Just give me the boy. 
That was my guest, Billy Porter, singing Sondheim's The Last Midnight from the show Into the Woods. And it's featured on his album At the Corner of Broadway and Soul. If you're just joining us, my guest is Billy Porter. He's the star of the FX series Pose, and he starred in the Broadway musical Kinky Boots. His new memoir is called Unprotected. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Billy Porter, recorded last year. He won an Emmy for his starring role in the FX series Pose about the underground queer ballroom culture of the late 80s and early 90s. He played the ball MC, known as Pray Tell. Porter won a Tony for his starring role as the drag queen Lola in the Broadway musical Kinky Boots. His memoir is called Unprotected, and it's now out in paperback. Let's talk a little about your book. There's there's a lot of trauma in the book. I'm um, starting with the Pentecostal church. You know, as as we talked about, you were we were called like little preacher. Um, little preacher man, they called me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was young, and, and your mother was very religious, still is, and um, church was in a way the place where you were damned because they thought you were too effeminate. Um, and leaning toward gay, which would be like big sin in your church. The Pentecostal An abomination. Church. Abomination, yes. But it's also the place where people recognized you had a gift. You have the gift of, of, of speaking. You had the gift of singing and, and what a gift it is. Um, so that, I'm sure, was very confusing for you. How much did you believe that you were going to be damned? When it's the only thing you know, um, it's the only thing that you can believe. Um, it was in the sixth grade when I was introduced to theater um, and bust, you know, in the second sort of wave of desegregation that I was introduced to another world. And that was sort of what cracked open a space for me to dream beyond my circumstance. When you were diagnosed with HIV a few years ago, was the fair still with you? Because people were saying, like, you know, AIDS is God's curse for homosexuality. And you heard that a lot because you were at a lot of ACT UP protests. Um, and there were always protesters of the protesters. And um, a lot of churches. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. In Pose, your character is diagnosed with AIDS. And um, if, if, you're, if you're still in the middle of watching Pose... As you're listening now, put your hands over your ears as I say this next sentence. <laughs> okay, that's sufficient time for hands over ears. Your character at the end of the series dies of AIDS. What was it like for you knowing that you had HIV and that it was under control? You were, you were taking the medicines, they were doing their job, and you were playing somebody who was dying. You say in your book, your body doesn't know the difference between performing something and actually living through something. So what was it like for you to have to live your character's experience dying of, of AIDS? You know, I have to say the first two seasons, I was so excited that somebody was finally taking me seriously as an actor um, that I didn't even realize I was being triggered. You know, I was so excited that I was able to play a character where I could use 
the work to sort of try to heal my own pain, my own shame as it related to my own HIV status. And the last day when I went in to, or the day I went in to shoot the, um, my death scene, I, I said to the whole cast and crew, this is the death of Pray Tell, but the rebirth of Billy. And um, that has been a very powerful, powerful um, thing that has come out of, of the show. What did you mean that it was your rebirth? Um, because I was getting ready to tell the world that I was HIV positive and I was getting ready to get myself free. Um, and I knew that that was happening. I set myself free, honey. No more secrets. You kept that secret for years because you were diagnosed in 07. Yeah, 14 years. Yeah. What was it like to keep that secret for so long? And um, why did you feel you needed to keep it secret? Shame. You know, shame is a silencer. Shame is a killer. Shame is a murderer. And... um, You know, I had nothing but shame um, in my entire life. And so, you know, it was working through, actively working through the shame to get to the other side of that, which is truth and healing and authenticity. Were there there also practical reasons for keeping it secret, like fear that no one would take a chance on you fearing that you'd be sick? that you couldn't get insurance if you were in a movie? It was 2007 and, you know, I didn't know and I, was, I wasn't working and I was on the precipice of obscurity, so I wasn't trying to, like, you know, throw another wrench into just another reason for somebody not to hire me. And I also, you know, my mom, my mom went through so much when I came out as queer and wouldn't um, acquiesce to um, the church's demands for my straightness. And she went through a lot. She, she's had a hard life. She was diagnosed with a degenerative neurological disorder. So your mother married a man who um, became abusive after a year. So she left him. You were born during that year. So she took you and left. And then she was told by a psychologist that she needed a man in the house. Um, and the psycho- you were seeing that psychologist. Had you been seeing him to make you straight? Was that the point? Well, I mean, in retrospect, yes. Um, you know, I was raised by a lot of women. There were a lot of women. And I was effeminate. And we were religious. And they were afraid that I was too effeminate. And so I was sent to a psychologist to work on that, I guess. Um, and I went to him every Wednesday after kindergarten. Um, and then at the end of the year or whatever, however long it was, the evaluation was, uh, the doctor told my mother that I was fine and that I just, she just needed to get a man around the house and that would teach me to be more of a man. Well, she, she did get married again. And, um, at first he just seemed great. It was great for you to have a father figure he taught you all kinds of things like how to use public transportation. He had tools. He had, you know, he, he had stuff that was really helpful to you. And then one night he asked you if you knew about the birds and the bees. Um, and you had no idea what he was talking about. So he explained a little bit. 
And he asked you if, if you wanted to see what an adult man looked like. And you said, sure. And he took off his clothes and showed you. And that was the beginning of his abuse. Did you know that you were being abused? No, because I thought those were my man lessons. That he was teaching you how to be a man? Yeah, that was what the man said. I just assumed that was what was happening. You know, because he came into my room, you know, when I would have nightmares um, prior to my stepfather, my mother would come in and just lay beside me. And, um, you know, it was just her presence that was sort of enough. And then I would wake up in the morning and she would be gone and it would be cool. And so when she got married, she started sending him in and that's how it kind of started. And so, you know, I called it an affair till I was 25 years old and in therapy. How old were you when, when this started? Seven. Seven to 12. Seven-year-olds don't have affairs. Correct. That's what my therapist told me. <laughs> at 25. You don't have that language at seven. No. You don't have that language at 12. You don't know that the, that the, per, that the man that your mother married because the doctor told her to get a man around the house. The doctor told her to get a man around the house so that he could teach me to be more of a man. So those were my man lessons. That's all I understood. So do you think when you were growing up that the abuse affected you in ways that you didn't understand were connected to your stepfather? Yes. Including the ulcers that you developed when you were a child? Yeah, you know, I had ulcers in the seventh grade, in the sixth and seventh grade. I had um, nodes on my vocal cords in the eighth grade. Um, You know, later on in life, once again, when I was in my 30s, um, I suffered debilitating acid reflux that took my voice away for three, three to five years. I didn't have a, you know, I, I had cords of steel and then... Years or months? Years. Years. I, 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 I couldn't rely on it. I could still sing, but it was like it could just go away at any given moment. And that was just new, and that was terrifying, and that was really, really hard. When did you tell your mother? I told her when I was 16. And what was her reaction? Um, she believed me. She believed me. I told her because my sister, um, who my stepfather is her blood father, um, she was turning seven. She was getting ready to turn seven. And I just, you know, I had blocked it out. I had forgotten about it. And then I saw them together at an amusement park. It all came flooding back to me. And in that moment, I told my mother, because I didn't know if he was a repressed homosexual or an equal opportunity pedophile. Like, I just didn't know, you know. And so I just blurted it out and told her. Um, and she believed me, but, you know, what was there to do for her? Because she was, you know, in a situation where she was disabled and didn't have any way to um, take care of herself and a family of two children, 
by herself. She didn't have a way to do that. And I was, you know, coming up on 17 and, you know, I was trying to get out anyway. So, you know, that whole situation was (laughs) weird and wild and quite damaging. Um, And there's been a lot of, you know, healing with that, with mom and You know, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to be able to communicate about it and talk about it um, in a family and in a culture that is um, used to keeping secrets um, and thrives on that, actually. Um, You know, this, this space has enabled my family in particular to break that cycle, and I'm grateful for that. Well, let me reintroduce you here. My guest is Billy Porter, star of the FX series Pose and the star of the Broadway musical Kinky Boots. His new memoir is called Unprotected. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. You were the star of the musical Kinky Boots in the original cast, and you you played Lola, who's a drag queen. Did that character strike you as three-dimensional, as real? Of course. That's the reason why I did it. (laughs) You know, I was gone from Broadway for 13 years and then Lola showed up. You know, what people don't really understand is that Lola is a first, a black, out, drag queen who is the heart of the musical, who's the heart of it, who's the heart of the story. You know, I don't care that she's a drag queen. The fabulous and serious can go hand in hand. I am proof positive of that. You know, I'm not saying I don't want to be fabulous. <laughs> I'm just saying I want to be fabulous and serious, y'all. I'm fabulous and serious. And there is a way to do that. And I feel like I have, I have um, latched on to that for myself personally. Your role was originally written to be a boxer who dresses in women's clothes or likes to dress in women's clothes. I I didn't see the British production in in which the character really was a boxer who I think was probably presumed to be straight. And you suggested changing the role. What did you say and how did you get to prevail (laughs) in that argument? I just went in and got the part, right? And so then I put the role together because, you know, a lot of people may not know, but it was a movie. And it was a movie with Chiwetel Ejiofor. And he was a straight man, a straight black man who liked to put on women's clothes. Good for him. He was great in it. He was great in the part. It works that way, too. That's the brilliance of Kinky Boots, I think, is that it works that way, too. My point in my own body, in my own space is, why? Why would I do that? What conversation is that moving forward? Nothing. That's nothing. That's Tyler Perry's Medea. That's Some Like It Hot. That's easy. Yeah, it's easy for audiences to look at a straight man in a dress, laugh at them, and move on. It's a different conversation when that character is not overweight, that character is not a clown. You know, Lola was a sexy drag queen who could pass as a woman. It was important to me to launch this different conversation. And so what happened was I crafted the role in a four-week workshop. And once I crafted the role and once everybody saw what I was doing, then I sat down with everybody and I said, now with the interpretation that I am doing, 
do any of you here think that anyone will believe that my character is straight? (laughs) Did anybody raise their hand? (laughs) And the answer was a resounding no, and I got my way. Let's pause here and listen to you from the cast recording of Kinking Boots. This is you singing Land of Lola. So here's my guest, Billy Porter. Leave expectations at the door Just let your eyes explore My cinematic flair From my boot to derriere I've got a lazy silken feel With arms as hard as steel I am freedom, I'm constriction A potpourri of contradiction Leave that humdrum piece of plum behind Once you walk inside these doors they blow your mind and light you down. And that's here I am. Yes, ma'am, I'm alone. And light you see, ooh, wee, that's me, Ebony. I am alone. Step into a dream. That glamour is extreme. Welcome to my fantasy. We give good epiphany. So come and take my hand. So that's my guest, Billy Porter, singing Land of Lola from the original cast recording of Kinky Boots, and the album won a Grammy. His performance in the show won a Tony. Let's take another break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Billy Porter, and he has a new memoir called Unprotected. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. When you got to New York during the AIDS epidemic, what was it like for you to have friends and mentors who were dying of AIDS? I mean, you were, you were new to this community. People who you become, became close to were very sick, and you, you, lost, you lost people who were really important to you at a crucial time in your life when, when you must have been feeling very vulnerable, too. It was a call to action. You know, we all just went straight to the front lines to fight for our lives and make a difference. And I am grateful to have had that experience because now I know what to do in this moment. Um, And that's important. In this moment, do you mean that we are in in this world, in this moment, right now that we're in in this world, where everything is trying to go back to what it was before. We got to go fight again. And I actually know how to do that. Right. As a result of what I've already been through. So no, I'm not scared. No, I'm not terrified. Yes, I see everything that you all are doing. And the answer is no, we're not going back ever. And so you're talking about authoritarianism and Black Lives Matter and... I'm talking about all the that's happening right now. Yes, all of it. And the pandemic. The pandemic, the laws, the transgender laws, the voting restriction laws. You know what I'm talking about. Everything that is going on in this world today. Yeah, I hear you. That's trying to wrench us back into a time that we done already fought for this stuff. We fought for this stuff already. I was a part of the fight for this stuff, which, which engages me. 
in this moment to know and understand how to move this stuff forward? Because the answer is no. So um, now I have to I have to ask you about clothes. Your clothes are fabulous, and you have these designers that you work with. And, and like I said, they manage to be both like elegant and outrageous at the same time, which I think is really hard to do. So what do you want to say with fashion when you are out in the public? Well, I'm first-generation post-civil rights movement. And we were taught that the first impression is what you look like. And so, you know, I also grew up in the church, in the black church, and as we all know now, the black church is a fashion show. Um, I used to get, you know, my favorite time of year was Easter and Christmas because I would get a new suit every Easter and Christmas for church. Um, You know, I was the kid that dressed up in a shirt and tie to go to public high school. I've always been a fashion person. I just have always loved it. You know, it didn't occur to me, even after doing, playing Lola on Broadway, that I, Billy, would ever sort of entertain the idea of wearing feminine clothing in my real life, you know, because there's such a taboo on it. And uh, so I didn't know. And then I got Pose, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do anything on, you know, on the red carpet that plays with gender, this is the role and the space to do it. Like, it actually is in alignment with the work that I'm doing. So that's a good justification to sort of try it. And um, so I was just trying it and testing the waters, and then the Oscars happened. I was like, all right, well, I guess it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the outfit that you wore that most expresses gender fluidity through clothing is, and it's like the perfect, like, metaphor for it, is um, the the tuxedo gown, which was the elegant tuxedo on, on, on top, and the bottom was this, you know, flared uh, gown. And that was your idea, right? Yes, it was. And did you want something that literally said gender fluidity? Yes, I did. You know, I got the call to host the ABC red carpet, like, two weeks out. I just so happened to be um, at my first fashion week. I was at the Christian Siriano show. And so I just started thinking about, well, what am I going to wear? What am I going to wear? And I thought back to my old college days and joking with my buddies about how the men are so boring. The men are so boring. They only get to wear tuxedos. I'm going to wear a ball gown. I'm going to wear a ball gown when I go to the Oscars. I remembered saying that, and I thought, hmm... This is your moment. (laughs) If it's going to happen, it's going to happen now or never. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if it, you know, if the shot was from the chest up, the first shot you saw was me, you know, looking like I'm in a traditional tux. And then when you pull back, it's a ball gown. I mean, that would like change everything. And, um... Turns out it did. Yeah, (laughs) that's really great. Billy Porter, it's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you for your new book. And thank you for doing this interview. It's been just a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Billy Porter's memoir, now out in paperback, is called Unprotected. He spoke with Terry Gross last year. On Monday's show, 
the experience of African Americans in World War II. Historian Matthew Delmont talks about the more than one million who served in the military, the contributions they made and discrimination they faced, and those who struggled for equality in civilian life. Delmont's book is titled Half American. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman and Julian Hertzfeld. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David Bean Cooley. Some